Before They Were Beatles, episode 14, Hamburg Bound. This is a story of how one of thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity and exploring musical boundaries. It's also a story of tragedy, coincidence and at times just sheer luck. It is a story of beginnings, it is a story of John, Paul, George and Ringo before they were Beatles. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Part 1, 1st to the 13th of June, 1960. As well as the Monday night sessions at the Jacaranda Coffee Club, the Silver Beatles were by now playing regular Saturday night dances at the College of Art. In fact, various members of the student union soon regarded them as the college band. Two members of the union social committee were particularly influential in this regard, Bill Harry and Stuart Sutcliffe. Their influence also extended to them being able to use student union cash to advance the group's efficient funds to enable them to buy an amplifier, which they could use not only at the school dances, but wherever they played. The amp was in fact never returned to the college, nor did the Beatles ever repay the loan. It was probably around this time that the group had their first experience of soft drugs, other than their regular and prodigious alcohol consumption, that is. On the evening of their first Jacaranda performance, they were joined on stage by beat poet Royston Ellis who was performing at Liverpool University. Crawling round the darkness of the seething vital dungeon, pushing past the prisoners of the listless tapping senses, clinging to the weapons of the coffee-wake-me language. Stabbed by the guitar twang. He proceeded to perform several of his poems with musical accompaniment from the Silver Beatles. And after the gig, he was invited back to the Gambia Terrace apartment. Here, he introduced at least John and Stuart to Benzedrine, which at that time was obtained by opening a Vicks inhaler and chewing on the strip inside. Shortly after this, Paul was invited to an art college party with John. At the party, a student with a goatee beard and a striped t-shirt was hunched over a guitar singing what sounded like a French song. Soon after, Paul began to work on a comical imitation to amuse his friends and it remained a party piece with nothing but Charles Aznavour-style Gallic groaning for years afterwards. But in 1965, John persuaded Paul to put some lyrics to the tune, which he eventually transformed into Michel. Regular gigs around Liverpool were also now part of the Silver Beatles schedule. The first gig after their return from Scotland was on the 2nd of June at the Neston Institute, replacing Cass and the Casanovas, who were now on the Billy Fury tour. The local paper, the Hoylake News and Advertiser, in a preview article printed while the group was still in Scotland on May 27th, commented that, quote, In there, the Casanovas place, the teenagers of Neston and District will be able to dance to the music of the Silver Beatles, the new five-piece group has made a terrific impact on Merseyside, pulling in capacity houses wherever they appear. A review of this performance appeared in the Heswell and Neston edition of the Birkenhead News, and it read, A Liverpool rhythm group, the Beatles, made their debut at the Neston Institute on Thursday night, when Northwest promoter Mr Les Dodds presented three and a half hours of rock and roll. 
The five-strong group which has been pulling in capacity houses on Merseyside comprises three guitars, bass and drums. John Lennon, the leader, plays one of the three rhythm guitars. The other guitarists being Paul Ramone and Carl Harrison. Stuart Destal plays the bass and the drummer is Thomas Moore. They all sing either together or as soloists. Recently they returned from a Scottish tour starring Johnny Gentle and are looking forward to a return visit in a month's time. Among the theatres they have played at are the Hippodrome Manchester and the Empire Liverpool and the Pavilion in Aintree. This review was the one furnished by John years later to prove his lack of using a stage name. Paul, Stuart and George were still using theirs. In it the group is referred to as the Beatles, B-E-A-T-L-E-S, for the first time in print. Why this version of the name was used was never been resolved. Maybe the reporter had got the name from either Stuart or John, or maybe he just didn't hear the silver part. Two days later, they played a gig at the Grosvenor Ballroom, Grosvenor Road, in Wallasey, Cheshire. The Grosvenor, like the Neston Institute, was operated by local dance promoter Les Dodd, under the Paramount Enterprises banner. Dodd had been promoting strict tempo ballroom dances at the Grosvenor and the Neston Institute since 1936. But by 1960, he realised that beat bands were attracting larger crowds, and he approached Alan Williams, who suggested he book the Silver Beatles. Other sources suggest it was Williams who approached him, looking for a venue for his new charges. Pay was £10, £1 to Williams, £1 for the bouncer, and the rest split between the band members. Gigs at Dodds' venues ran from 8pm until midnight, and admission was three shillings. They returned to the Grosvenor Ballroom on the 6th, this time sharing a bill with Jerry and the Pacemakers. The next gig at a Les Dodds run event proved to be a traumatic experience for all involved. At the Neston Institute on the 9th, one researcher claims that a 16-year-old boy was stomped to death by a gang of teddy boys right in front of the stage and the performing Silver Beatles. However, this story has never been verified. Whatever the reason for the long-suffering Tommy Moore, this was one gig too many, and he didn't turn up for the next show on the 11th at the Grosvenor Ballroom. As a gag, John asked if anyone in the audience fancied playing the drums. The only person who wanted to take up John on his offer was a well-known local thug called Ronnie. John expected his guest to play around for a few minutes and leave, but Ronnie insisted on sitting in with the group for the whole act. Tommy Moore also failed to show for the gig at the Jacaranda on the 13th. So Alan Williams, Paul and John headed to the Bottle Works and tried to persuade their reluctant drummer to climb down off his forklift truck and rejoin the group. But despite their pleas, Tommy refused, preferring the stability of his real job. So the Silver Beatles were once more without a drummer. Part 2, 16th to 30th of June 1960. The remainder of the month they struggled on without a drummer and alternating gigs at the Neston Institute on the 16th, 23rd and 30th with dates at the Grosvenor on the 18th and the 25th. For the last gig of the month at the Neston Institute, Paul was sporting a new guitar. With John and George both getting new guitars the previous November and Stuart's purchase in January, he must have felt he was due for a change of instrument as well. So on the 30th, Paul made the dutiful trip to Hesse's and signed a higher purchase agreement for a Rosetta Solid 7 electric guitar. This was a great looking instrument with a semi-hollow double cutaway body. While the Silver Beatles were working nearly every night and building a strong local reputation, perhaps the most significant event this month that had a long-term impact on their future didn't actually involve them. Unknown to Alan Williams, the Royal Caribbean Steel Band had abandoned the Jacaranda for a gig in the German port of Hamburg. They had changed their name after Lord Woodbine left the band to become Alan Williams' business partner. How the band came to land a Hamburg gig is something of a mystery. However, Casey Jones, leader of Cass and the Casanovas, always maintained that he used the Jacaranda's phone for after hours to contact promoter Bruder Koschmeider in Hamburg and that one day Alan Williams intercepted the call and took over all the Hamburg contacts. 
If this is true, it's not inconceivable that the Royal intercepted a late-night call and found themselves talked into a gig in Germany. However, as Williams didn't contact Koschmeider until the following month, this is unlikely. Alan Williams' more plausible explanation is that some German seamen came into the club and told the band that they could get plenty of work in Hamburg. Other variations on this theme is that some German seamen had seen the band playing at the Jack and recommended them to a Hamburg booking agent on their return home. Whatever the reason, the arrival of the Jacarandas house band in Hamburg would be key to the future of the Beatles. Part 3, July 1960 With his old band now playing in Germany, Alan Williams' business partner and associate, Lord Woodbine, suggested that the two entrepreneurs consider another business opportunity. In early July, they opened an unlicensed club called the New Cabaret Artist Club at 174A Upper Parliament Street in Liverpool. Despite the high-sounding address and club name, this was in fact an illegal strip club located in the cellar of an old run-down Victorian house. The star turn at the Alan Williams' new venture was a buxom dancer from Manchester who went by the name of Janice. As part of her contract, she demanded a live backing band rather than dance to records. This proved to be a problem as the club drew in most of its audience at lunchtime when the local businessmen took a break from the daily office grind to enjoy the spectacle of another sort of grind entirely. As most of the local cabaret backing bands were amateur and only worked in the evenings, Williams needed to find a bunch of musicians who were available during the day. The answer was waiting for him at the Jacaranda, the Silver Beatles. Alan Williams offered them a wage of 10 shillings a day for two 20-minute sets. It wasn't much, but it was better than beans on toast. So they took the gig. When they arrived at the club, Janice gave them a set of sheet music for her usual backing numbers, such as music by Beethoven and Cacciatorium, but it was meaningless to a group of teenagers who couldn't read a note of music. So they agreed to play a set of instrumental numbers they did know. So Janice danced to the accompaniment of tunes such as Begin the Begin, the Harry Lyme theme from The Third Man, Moonglow, theme from Picnic, September Song and Summertime. The whole experience was an eye-opener for the teenagers. Paul later recalled, John, George, Stu and I used to play in a strip club backing Janice the stripper. At the time we wore little lilac or purple jackets or something like that. Well, we played behind Janice and naturally looked at her. Everybody looked at her. It was just sort of normal. And at the end of the act, she would turn around and well, well, we were young lads. We'd never seen anything like it before. And we all blushed. Four blushing, red-faced lads. Around the same time as he was involved in the new cabaret artist club, Lord Woodbine also tried opening a business of his own, called the New Colony Club. It too was located in the cellar of an even more derelict house at 80 Berkeley Street, and the seedy little club soon became another place to spend long hours hanging about doing nothing in particular. In exchange for being allowed to stay, the Silver Beatles would occasionally perform an informal afternoon session to help out their pal Woody. With his new club underway, Alan Williams turned his attention to the next opportunity that had presented itself, Hamburg. Part 4. July 1960 continued. To Williams, it seemed an obvious conclusion that if the Royal Caribbean Steel Band was going down well, there may be an opening for all the emerging rock groups to play in Germany. And of course, he could set himself up as their sole representative. 
In Germany, as in Britain, rock and roll was starting to replace jazz as the predominant popular music. The German promoters were keen to book rock and roll acts into their clubs, but bringing stars over from America would be too expensive. Hiring young British groups who were playing American rock numbers would be a lot cheaper, and Alan Williams saw an opportunity. Asking to borrow a tape recorder that John himself had borrowed from the art college, Williams taped performances by several of the local rock and roll groups and headed for Germany. How Williams found club owner Bruno Koschmeider is something of a mystery. Some sources say that he went looking for Koschmeider, others that he just stumbled into the first club he found that happened to be Koschmeider's Der Kaiserkeller. Alan Williams was determined to play his precious tape for the German club owner and after several attempts managed to set it up so he could let the Germans hear just how good the Liverpool bands were. But unfortunately the tape was full of static hum and nothing else. Embarrassed, Williams returned to Liverpool, but Bruno Koschmeider was intrigued by all this talk of British rock bands. So he set out for the one British city he knew, London, and the Two Eyes Club, where British Elvis wannabe Tommy Steele had been discovered a few years earlier. Here, Koschmeider met a keyboard player called Ian Haynes, formerly of the Alex Harvey band, who convinced Koschmeider that he had a band called The Jets, a name he'd actually made up on the spur of the moment, and signed a contract. After the German promoter left, Haynes hastily formed The Jets from among his friends who happened to be in the bar at the time. The Jets, which included a singer called Tony Sheridan, became the first British rock and roll group to play in Hamburg. While the Silver Beatles may have been spending their days hanging around Alan Williams's and Lord Woodbine's clubs, they were still playing regular evening gigs at their usual citywide venues. And despite the loss of Tommy Moore, they'd struggled on without a drummer. And John never repeated his open invitation to anyone in the crowd who fancied a bash. For their first gig of the month, on the second at the Grosvenor Ballroom, they were reunited with Johnny Gentle. Gentle was back in his hometown visiting family and decided to take in a gig by his old backing group. And partway through the evening, he had joined them on stage. Their last gig as a drummerless foursome turned out to be the 7th of July at the Wirral Institute. After the gig, the group was, as usual, hanging around the jacaranda when they heard the noise of drumming from across the street. Alan Williams and boys went in search of the mystery drumming, shouting in the street for the drummer to show himself. The figure that emerged from the building opposite the jacaranda was one Norman Chapman, a picture framer and restorer by trade. Chapman was an amateur drummer who'd taken to practicing in the office where he worked after hours rather than disturbing his family at home. He was immediately offered a spot in the group and made his debut as a member of the Silver Beatles on the 9th at the Grosvenor Ballroom. They played the Grosvenor again on the 16th and 23rd of the month. The fights between various factions of the audience were starting to get worse. Difficult to comprehend as it seems now, most of the audiences didn't go to listen to the Silver Beatles play. They came to dance and some came to fight. 
The slightest insult perceived or imagined was enough to spark a bloody confrontation between rival gangs of teddy boys. While the teddy boys represented one threat to authority in the Britain of 1960, the other main concern for the establishment, as far as teenagers was concerned, was the scourge of the beatniks. On the 24th of July, a national newspaper, the Sunday People, ran a full-page article on the beatnik horror. The accompanying photograph showed the squalid conditions that such artsy teenagers lived in. The residence in question was none other than the interior of three Gambia Terrace, occupied by art college students Mr John Lennon and Mr Stuart Sutcliffe. In fact, John and Stuart usually kept the spacious flat generally clean and tidy, but a few weeks previously, Alan Williams had learnt the newspaper was running a series of articles on the beatniks and dropouts from journalists that frequented the jacaranda. They mentioned the paper was on the lookout for a typical beatnik pad to photograph, so Alan Williams volunteered three Gambia Terrace and persuaded John and Stuart to agree. Before the photo shoot, Williams deliberately went over and made the flat look scruffy and untidy. However, the day the article appeared in the national press, Williams was not in Liverpool, but in London with another group he'd taken under his wing, Derry and the Seniors. According to Alan Williams, the trip was instigated by a call from Larry Parnes the previous day cancelling a booking for Derry and the Seniors. Williams promised to drive to London straight away and get them a gig. The first logical stop was at the Two Eyes, where he managed to get them a few minutes of stage time. Scanning the audience, Williams was amazed to spot Bruno Koschmeider sat at the back of the room. Unknown to Williams, the Jets had been a big hit in the Hamburg clubs and Koschmeider had returned to London to look for more acts. The last person that he expected to meet was the man from Liverpool. After their short stage performance, Koschmeider was so impressed by the seniors that he offered them a contract immediately and they left for Hamburg the next day. Of course, he may have signed them just as an act of recognition for the part Williams had played in sparking his business interest in British rock and roll bands. Whatever the reason, Derry and the Seniors were the first Liverpool band to play in Hamburg. Many others would soon follow them. Back in Liverpool, two distinct yet separate events would take the Silver Beatles once more crashing down and looking like they were going nowhere. On the 30th of July, the group once again played at the Grosvenor Ballroom, but the violence was the worst it had ever been and the organisers lost control. The local council immediately banned promoter Les Dodds from holding any more beat concerts. The council dance halls could now only be used for ballroom dancing. So the Silver Beatles had lost their two regular venues, the Grosvenor Hall and the Neston Institute, plus the only promoter who was giving them regular work was now banned from actually employing them. To add to the group's misery, new drummer Norman Chapman had received his call-up papers for national service and he had to leave for basic training and then was posted to Kenya. Chapman was in one of the last batch of British youths drafted under national service, for the practice was dropped in December 1960. If it had carried on just a few months longer, it's a strong possibility that John and Paul would have been drafted as well, and the Beatles would never have emerged as the group it did. The Silver Beatles were back to being a foursome with no drummer and no prospect of regular work. So in the interim, Paul, who was already showing signs of his musical diversity, would occasionally sit behind the skins when a drummer was needed. The lack of a permanent drummer had also lost them the opportunity of two further tours as a backing group for a member of the Larry Parnes stable. 
The gig for the second Johnny Gentle tour was passed to Cass and the Casanovas, and they also missed out on a booking to back singer Dickie Pride on his inaugural tour. Part 5. August 1960. Salvation for the Silver Beatles arrived at the Jacaranda on the 2nd of August. It came in the form of a letter from Bruno Koschmeider to Alan Williams, asking if he could supply a group for a new club he was opening called the Indra. Williams' first thought was to offer it to Liverpool's most popular group of the time, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, featuring Ringo Starr on drums. Although not their manager, Williams thought by arranging for the group known for its energetic showmanship, he would make a good impression on the Germans, and it could lead to further business. However, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes have already committed to the summer season at Butlins, so turned down the Hamburg trip. Next on Williams' list was Jerry and the Pacemakers, but the home living group didn't want to go abroad. So in desperation, Williams turned to the group that spent most of its time hanging around his coffee bar. He told the Silver Beatles that the gig was theirs with one stipulation. They had to find a drummer willing to go to Hamburg with them before the scheduled August 16th departure date. Given the group's track record at finding and retaining drummers, this seemed like an impossible task. George recalled, Alan Williams came and said, OK lads, you've got this job in Germany, but he's asked for a five-piece band. At that point, Paul was the drummer because our other drummers didn't show up. That's when I said, I know this guy, Pete Best, and he'd had a drum kit for Christmas. With the usual Grosvenor Ballroom gig cancelled, the group spent the evening of 6th of August at the Casbah watching Ken Brown and Pete Best's group, Blackjacks. By coincidence, this was actually the group's last performance as Ken was moving to London. Pete Best recalls, The former quarrymen had started drifting back to the Casbah after their Scottish tour. George was the first to pop in, sometimes alone, sometimes with his brother Peter. The rest followed, and by now I was the proud owner of a smart-looking new kit in Blue Mother of Pearl. Pete's new kit was an expensive item from the Rushworth Music Store. The centrepiece was a large 26-inch bass drum, when the standard size was 22 inches, which would contribute to Pete's distinctive driving drumming sound. This was complemented by a snare, top rack tom and floor tom, as well as a hi-hat and crash cymbals. A few days later, after the last Black Jacks gig, Pete Best received a call from Paul McCartney. How'd you like to come to Hamburg with the Beatles? Pete was asked to come down for an audition. This may have been a ploy by Paul to cover the fact that they were in desperate need of a drummer, as no one else was considered or auditioned. Pete Best, with his sparkly new Blue Pearl Premier drum kit, arrived to audition at the Wyvern Club on the 12th of August. John was the only one there to listen to him, and John suggested that rather than wait for the others, Pete should start. He recalls playing Ramrod, by the end of which George and Stuart had arrived. After another couple of numbers, Paul arrived and they all had a jam session playing Shaking All Over. Pete also recalls that Alan Williams popped in towards the end of the audition but didn't really take that much notice of what was going on. The new five-piece group debuted with a couple of gigs at the, at the Jacaranda just to teach Pete the basic song list and practice a few of the Lennon-McCartney originals. As well as a drummer, they had at last settled on a permanent name, The Beatles. But before they could leave, they had to first convince their parents that they should be allowed to go to Hamburg. John's aunt Mimi knew that his art studies were almost a thing of the past by this point and reluctantly allowed him to pursue his dream. 
Stuart was scheduled to go on a year sabbatical from college anyway, while George's parents gave their permission and some practical advice. His father told him to boil the water before using it, while his mother made him some scones for the journey. But Paul had the greatest problems, first enlisting the aid of his younger brother and pleading his case, and when that failed, Alan Williams was brought in. This is perhaps a sign of how good a salesman and talker he was that even though he could never get Paul's name right, he called him John all the way through the pitch, he successfully sold a sceptical Jim McCartney on the idea of steady wages and the opportunity for his son to, quote, experience new meaningful horizons. On the 15th of August, Alan Williams wrote to Bruno Koschmeider informing him that the Beatles would be leaving Liverpool the next day to take up residence in Hamburg. The news was greeted less than enthusiastically by Howard Casey of Derry and the Seniors, who complained that, quote, sending a bum group like the Beatles would ruin the chances of further Hamburg gigs for other Liverpool bands. The following day, the 16th of August, 1960, Lord Woodbine recalls that the five boys, Alan, his wife Beryl, myself and Alan's brother-in-law, all piled into this little van for the trip. Alan and I shared the driving, so we got the good seats. I don't know how comfortable it was for the others in the back. The old green and cream Austin van had been decorated with the name The Beatles, crudely made from strips of newspaper by John and glued to the sides. In the boys' suitcases were new costumes of black crew neck sweaters and short houndstooth jackets, for which Alan Williams had advanced them £15 each against an IOU signed by Stuart and Paul. The long journey took them from Liverpool to Harwich and then by ferry to the Hook of Holland. Entry into continental Europe was arranged on student visas as Alan Williams didn't have the time to obtain the correct work permits for them. On the road through Holland, they stopped at the Arnhem War Memorial and had their photographs taken by Barry Chang, Alan Williams' brother-in-law. In the photograph, Paul, George, Pete and Stuart are stood in front of the memorial where you can see the prophetic words, Their names liveth forevermore. John stayed in the van. 36 hours after leaving Liverpool, the Beatles arrived at the Indra Club at 34 Grossfeierstrasse in Hamburg. Over the next three years in Hamburg and back in Liverpool's Cavern Club, the Beatles would refine the unique energetic style that would eventually change the world of popular music and inspire generations to come. But that's a whole other story, which we will start to cover in season two of Before They Were Beatles. As you may have gathered from the sign-off, this was the last episode of the first season of this podcast. We will be taking a few months off to go on vacation and do some additional research. But we will be back in season two covering the events of 1961 and the continuing story of John, Paul, George and Ringo before they were Beatles. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you'd like to leave a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. The music heard in this episode included The Quarrymen, In Spite of All the Danger, Royston Ellis and the Shadows, Paul McCartney, Michelle, Gerhard Groschman, Summertime, Tommy Steele, Teenage Party, Tony Sheridan, I Like Love, Derry and the Seniors, Double Twist, Paul McCartney on drums, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates shaking all over, and the Beatles, Kansas City, live in Hamburg. 
You can find full versions of the music heard in this podcast in the dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel, for which I'll add a link in the show notes. If you'd like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback and Kindle editions. I'm your host, writer and producer, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe and enjoy peace and love. Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megrid Entertainment, a division of 4J's group, LLC.